Well, hello. Welcome to the Jazz Focus. My name is John Clark. Happy to have you here. Hope you're enjoying these podcasts where we shed some light on some cobwebby corners of jazz history. Today's program is going to be devoted to a particular singer and two albums that this singer made in the late 1950s for Atlantic Records. And the singer in question is a man named Big Joe Turner, who was known as a blues singer out of Kansas City. We'll talk about him and his career. And uh, he had uh, gone through some ups and downs in his career and done a number of different things. But by the late 50s, he was coming back to his roots, as it were, with uh, jazz, improvisational jazz, and blues. And he did two albums uh, in the 50s, late 50s, 56 and 59, called um, The Boss of the Blues and Big Joe Rides Again, uh, both of which featured him with an all-star cast of jazz musicians. And uh, we'll be hearing some great solos from people like Coleman Hawkins and Lawrence Brown, Pete Brown, Selden Powell, Frank West, all kinds of different people. So let's talk a little bit about Joe Turner. Joe Turner was born in Kansas City in 1911, and he uh, came up by singing in churches and on uh, street corners and so forth. Uh, fairly typical African-American youth experience of the day for people who wanted to get into music. He learned by doing, as it were. He uh, worked as a bartender at the Sunset, uh, Ball, or Sunset Bar, actually, in Kansas City, which was kind of a, uh, an across-the-tracks establishment that catered to a pretty rough clientele. The head fellow at the bar was a man named Piney Brown, and uh, one of Joe Turner's best-known songs that he composed himself was the Piney Brown Blues, and we may or may not hear that today. I just played a version of that on my radio show on WETF uh, as part of our tribute to Kansas City. Uh, this is a, a outgrowth of that program. So he was a bartender there, as I mentioned, and he made the acquaintance of a piano player who had been playing at that bar for some time, a man named Pete Johnson. And Pete Johnson uh, was kind of stereotyped as a boogie-woogie piano player, and he was a very good boogie-woogie piano player, but he was very much more. He was a good jazz band piano player, he was a good accompanist, and he could play uh, much more sophisticated tunes than boogie-woogie, which is primarily blues-based. And he and Joe Turner uh, formed a kind of a loose partnership uh, from the late 20s on until uh, Pete Johnson died in the about 1970 or so. They performed together quite often. In fact, for the first 10 15 years of their uh, association, they were pretty much joined at the hip, professionally speaking. Uh, As I said, they uh, performed at the Sunset as a duo. Joe Turner would be behind the bar doing bartender things and singing while Pete Johnson accompanied him out on the dance floor, and they were quite an act, uh, as it were, then. And Joe Turner developed a very leather-lunged way of singing the blues because there was no amplification in places like that back in those days, this being the late 20s and early 30s, and uh, that served him in good stead for the rest of his career. He came out of a tradition of blues shouting uh, from Kansas City and uh, in the Southwest that featured other people like Jimmy Rushing and uh, many of the great uh, black male blues singers as well. If anyone has seen the film called Kansas City, I think it was by Robert Altman in the late 1990s, that really uh, recreates the atmosphere of this time period in Kansas City. It was run by the Prendergast regime. Tom Prendergast was a, a fixer. He was a, a local politician who had gangland uh, connections. Of course, this was during Prohibition, and uh, the underworld was uh, pretty important in terms of uh, the alcohol trade and speakeasies and so forth. And that's where jazz and blues uh, had its most devoted following during this period. And many jazz musicians later on in talking about the 20s and 30s pointed out the fact that uh, some of these bad people were actually quite good to work for. Uh, Earl Hines spoke very highly of Al Capone and um, New York musicians, talked about Dutch Schultz and these different uh, uh, gangland operatives who uh, served as protectors as well. They uh, had these clubs and establishments which were operating a little below the law, shall we say, but they featured music and they protected their musicians and provided steady employment, so the musicians were not terribly offended by them uh, in many ways. And uh, after Prohibition was repealed and some of the gangland connections started withering away, musicians found it even harder to make a living during this period of the Depression. And the Prendergast regime in Kansas City was famous for uh, running the nightlife of the city. And the nightlife, in terms of music, was very vivid. Uh, Musicians like uh, Count Basie and Jimmy Rushing, Hot Lips Page, they grew out of this tradition in Kansas City. They came from the big bands of 
the late 1920s and early 30s, led by Benny Moten and Georgie Lee and uh, Walter Page, people like that, who uh, developed a style of big band and jazz playing that prefigured the swing era from a number of years later, just in its rhythmic conception, its use of riffs, and its development of arranging principles. So jazz was really almost on its cutting edge in Kansas City along about 1932-33, and uh, Joe Turner was one of the most notable vocalists. There's a famous scene in that Robert Altman film where uh, there's a jam session in a bar that may have been modeled on the sunset uh, with some younger contemporary musicians in the late 1990s uh, imitating the uh, performers who were famous in the 30s. They didn't necessarily play in their style, but they recreated the atmosphere and the whole aesthetic of the jam session, the very um, uh, combative atmosphere between the players that was nevertheless still very cooperative and interested in developing the sense of the music. So Joe Turner uh, came up in this atmosphere. He and Pete Johnson actually went to New York in 1936 and did a few uh, jobs. They didn't uh, find too much success, so they went back to Kansas City, but they were brought back again to New York in 1938. John Hammond, the jazz producer, was uh, producing concerts called Spirituals to Swing, and his concert in 1938, he brought uh, Pete Johnson and Joe Turner in to do a couple of tunes on the concert uh, that was held, I think, on Christmas Eve of 1938, along with a lot of other uh, great jazz and blues acts, and that launched them into um, the forefront of the music in New York City, and pretty soon they got a job playing at the Cafe Society, which was a, a kind of a somewhat ritzy um, intellectuals type of haunt, uh, and stayed around New York for many years, had a lot of cabaret singers and things, but always featured very good jazz, and Pete Johnson and Joe Turner and two other boogie-woogie piano players, Mead Lux Lewis and Albert Ammons, held sway at the Cafe Society for several years, starting in 1931, going into the early 1940s. After that, Joe Turner and uh, Pete Johnson went their separate ways for a while. Turner went to Los Angeles. He uh, had a featured role in Jump for Joy, the Duke Ellington musical that was being produced out there, and he was in a few films as well. He started recording in the mid-40s for National Records, and then moved over to a number of other uh, smaller labels before ending up with Atlantic in the 1950s, and his style changed from blues and jazz to rhythm and blues, and then finally to rock and roll. He was a little bit old to be a rock and roll singer, but he was very influential on the first wave of African-American rock singers and white rock singers as well, and the uh, tune that really put him over the top in terms of that type of popularity was Shake, Rattle, and Roll, which he recorded for Atlantic in 1954, and that gave him uh, some cachet in the rock and roll industry. Industry. He actually was um, elected to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame after he died. And that particular single uh, influenced a lot of uh, musicians who came up later. Not only black musicians like Little Richard and Chuck Berry, but white musicians like Bill Haley and... Um, even Elvis, uh, as they came up, they listened to Joe Turner and they were quick to uh, celebrate his accomplishments as well. So we're getting to the end of the 1950s here to listen to some music recorded by Joe Turner. Uh, in 1956, he was still with Atlantic Records and he took a step I don't know if you could say step back, but a lateral step, he decided to go back to his jazz roots. I don't know if he decided or the producers decided or what, but it was a very good decision nonetheless, maybe not financially, but artistically. So in 1956, he put out an album called The Boss of the Blues, and this entire album was recorded on two days in March, March 6th and 7th of 1956, and the personnel for the initial uh, first March 6th session was Joe Newman on the trumpet, Lawrence Brown on trombone, Pete Brown on alto sax, Frank Wess on tenor sax, Pete Johnson back in the fold on piano, Freddie Green on guitar, Walter Page on bass, and Cliff Lehman on drums. The next day, a couple of substitutions. Jimmy Nottingham replaced Joe Newman on trumpet, and Selden Powell replaced Frank Wess on tenor sax. Very interesting group here. We'll talk about them a little after we listen to a few tracks, uh, but suffice to say, a very effective jazz ensemble. So we're going to listen to two tracks right now to begin with. We're going to listen to um, Roland Pete, which was one of Turner and Johnson's signature tunes, one of the first tunes they recorded in the 1930s, and this is an updated version of that. Um, and we're going to go from there to a, a medium-driving bluesy tune, not quite a blues, but it's called Cherry Red. So we'll start with Roland Pete, followed by Cherry Red. 
Two sides from March of 1956, featuring Joe Turner, Big Joe Turner, the boss of the blues. So we heard Roland Pete featuring, significantly and appropriately, Pete Johnson, the great boogie-woogie pianist. And we can hear uh, that was a, a tune that the two of them, uh, Turner and Johnson, had worked up in the 30s in Kansas City. Count Basie had his own take on that. He called it Kansas City Boogie Woogie and uh, featured Jimmy Rushing on a, on a version of that called Boogie Woogie as well. And that also featured the tenor saxophonist Frank West. Many of these players on the two sessions, actually the four sessions we're going to be hearing from, were Count Basie alums from different periods. Frank West on tenor sax and Joe Newman on trumpet from this session were both from the... Um, later, or the mid-period Basie band, following the uh, Kansas City band, uh, Basie uh, reorganized in the late 40s, about 1947, when the handwriting was on the wall for big bands. He uh, disbanded, and he went to work with a, a nine-piece group, which lasted a couple of years, a very interesting group, maybe the f subject of a future podcast. But he uh, had the band leading, or the big band leading bug bite him again about 1950, and he called it, or it was called the New Testament Band, and it was very different from his original Kansas City band, but it became a powerhouse big band featuring arrangements by people like Frank Wess and also Ernie Wilkins, who was a saxophone player in that group. And Ernie Wilkins does not play on these Joe Turner sessions, but he is responsible for the arrangements, at least for the early ones. And so any of the background figures and routines uh, were written by Ernie Wilkins on this. In the rhythm section were two members of the early Basie band of the All-American Rhythm Section, Freddie Green on guitar and Walter Page on bass. On drums, we have Cliff Lehman, who was the only uh, non-African-American player in this group. He was a white drummer who was actually known uh, more as a Dixieland player, but he fits in beautifully on these sessions and does an excellent job driving the band as well. We also have Pete Brown on alto sax. We haven't heard from him yet. We will a little bit later. And Lawrence Brown on trombone. Lawrence Brown was featured on the second tune we heard, Cherry Red. And, of course, he uh, did his most familiar work with Duke Ellington's band in the 1930s and 40s, and later he went back to the band as well. He was known as the Reverend. He was very proper in his bearing and so forth. He had actually started his career out on the West Coast playing with Paul Howard's Quality Serenaders and made his first recordings with them. Uh, and he was a fine improviser, although he was known more as a lead trombone player I and mean, a melody trombone player with Ellington. But here he is allowed to stretch out. We heard three choruses on um, Cherry Red that uh, gave a good view of his style. So we're going to go up a day at this point uh, to March 7th and a couple of changes in personnel. Instead of Joe Newman on trumpet, and by the way we heard some very nice Joe Newman backing on that last track, we're going to have Jimmy Nottingham, another uh, alumnus of the Count Basie band from that later period, 1949-50, thereabouts. And Selden Powell will replace Frank West. Selden Powell uh, played in a lot of different groups out on the West Coast, um, big bands and also R&B bands as well. Did a lot of studio sessions too. So we're going to hear a couple more tracks uh, from that, this session that produced the boss of the blues. We're going to start with I Want a Little Girl, a pop tune from 1930 that was popular with the Kansas City bands. Lester Young made a famous recording of this with the Kansas City Six, but uh, a number of bands recorded this at the time. And then we're going to go from there to the old standard by W.C. Handy, the St. Louis Blues. So this is Joe Turner, the boss of the blues, 
I Want a Little Girl and St. Louis Blues. Oh my 
field today I'm feeling tomorrow like I feel today Gonna pack my trunk and make my getaway Say, Lord, where the diamond rain Oh, the man around my apron string
in the morning, early in the morning, get your lips, good night, everything's all right, good night, good night, good night. Some examples of humor in there, too. The blues was a very humorous music, as well as being a kind of a dark music at times, as well. So we started out with I Want a Little Girl, which featured the trumpet of Jimmy Nottingham, as well as the vocal of Joe Turner. Uh, for some reason, that trumpet always, uh, excuse me, that tune always turned into a, a, a trumpet feature. Uh, Joe Smith, the great cornetist of the 1920s was known for his version of that, which may have been recreated or possibly created on the recording by McKinney's Cotton Pickers. Uh, and there were other players as well. Buck Clayton featured himself on that number, and uh, this is another entry into that style as well. We also heard the tenor sax of Selden Powell and uh, the trombone of Lawrence Brown. Lawrence Brown got a lot of innings on this album. He uh, was having a jazz men's holiday, apparently. He was not with the Ellington Band at the time, although he was going to be going back to the band not too long after that. Uh, he was doing studio work, I think, on the West Coast when this album was made. Then we went to the St. Louis Blues, which featured, again, the tenor sax of Selden Powell. We heard some alto sax by Pete Brown in the background behind the verse, uh, the vocal verse, each time that came up. A little more from Pete Brown in a minute. And then some more Jimmy Nottingham at the end of that tune. And then at the very end of the tune, Joe Turner uh, added on to W.C. Handy's lyrics, uh, supplying two kind of common practice uh, verses in the blues that uh, emphasized humor as well. And we ended up with a tune that I stuck on there, largely to uh, feature Pete Brown, who's always been one of my favorite alto sax players. It was called When the Morning Glories Wake Up in the Morning, which was a Kansas City type of tune. Apparently, Joe Turner put that on the album, saying that he'd been singing that since the 30s in Kansas City. We heard some Lawrence Brown behind the vocal and a long solo for Pete Brown. Pete Brown was an alto sax player who played a lot of instruments, actually. Tenor sax, he played trumpet, he played piano, I think he played some guitar, too. Um, he was active in the Harlem scene of the 1930s. He had come from Baltimore, I believe, and he led bands and uh, also played in the first incarnation of the uh, John Kirby Sextet. Uh, when John Kirby put together his famous band, it originally had Pete Brown on alto sax and Frankie Newton on trumpet. Uh, they both left, uh, making way for Charlie Shavers and Russell Procope, which was the classic version of that band. And Newton and Brown went on to... Uh, form a band, actually Frankie Newton's band that made a number of recordings uh, and were active on 52nd Street as well in the late 30s. And Pete Brown did quite a lot of recordings under his own name and also uh, for Hugh Panazier uh, in a swing session in 1936. He recorded for Leonard Feather. He did quite a few things. By 1956, he was a little bit over the hill, musically speaking. He was suffering from various ailments, but he pulled it together for this session and uh, really recreated some of his sparkling earlier playing from 20 years before this date. And we heard a little bit of his best on When the Morning Glories Wake Up in the Morning. Well, we're going to go on to the other album in this series, not series of two, I suppose. Um, this is a, uh, an album called uh, Big Joe Rides Again, which uh, I guess suggested that the album that we just heard had some financial success. I should mention it was produced by Nishui Ertigan and Jerry Wexler. Ertigan was uh, one of the heads at Atlantic Records. He was a jazz fan, and he was responsible for a lot of the jazz recordings. Jerry Wexler, of course, was more of a pop and rock and roll producer. So he had produced, I think, Shake, Rattle, and Roll for uh, Big Joe Turner, a couple of years earlier, and somehow they both combined to bring Joe Turner back to his roots singing blues and jazz. So this second album came about in 1959 and had a similar type of vibe to it, but a very different personnel. Uh, again, it was recorded on two different days, September 9th and September 10th of 1959. The first day featured Paul Ricard on trumpet, Vic Dickinson on trombone, Jerome Richardson on alto sax, Coleman Hawkins on tenor sax, Jimmy Jones on piano, Jim Hall on guitar, Doug Watkins on bass, and Charlie Persip on drums. And uh, we're going to hear a few tunes, a couple of tunes from that session. And then the next day, uh, slightly different, not too much, uh, Ernie Royal replaced Paul Ricard on trumpet. So the first two tunes that we're going to hear from this album are... Uh, 
couple of my favorites, actually, uh, called Switchin' in the Kitchen, and then an old standard called I Get the Blues When It Rains. We're going to hear another standard uh, in the next set after that. Joe Turner, you know, was a classic blues singer in the sense that he did sing blues, but he also sang ballads, whatever the people wanted. And, you know, in an establishment where you depended on tips, you, you sang what you were asked for. So he had a repertoire that went well beyond the blues, and uh, we're hearing some of it today. So right now we'll hear Switching in the Kitchen and I Get the Blues When It Rains. When I was young, I was so spunky. Now I'm getting old and so forgetful. Well, we're switching in the kitchen, getting ready for the party tonight.
So, I Get the Blues, When It Rains, and that followed Switchin' in the Kitchen. Both of those featured fine tenor saxophone solos by Coleman Hawkins, who was entering the twilight of his career, I guess, 1959. He lived to the late 1960s uh, and still was playing well into the mid-60s. He had bouts of ill health after that, but nobody could play like he did. He always sounded modern. He was born in 1904, so he would have been... 55, 56 at the time of these sessions, and he always lied about his age too, so he could have been a little older than that, but he always kept up with the times, and he acted as a mentor to young musicians at several points in his career. So he was featured on those. By the way, these are also Ernie Wilkins' arrangements on this album. Ernie Wilkins was, I guess, kind of a house arranger for Atlantic Records for some of these jazzy and blues sessions, uh, and uh, he had arranged for Count Basie and uh, other groups as well. We heard some fine alto sax uh, in the background of Switching in the Kitchen. That was by Jerome Richardson, who played alto and tenor sax. He was more known as an alto sax player. He played with the uh, Thad Jones and Mel Lewis Band and many others. Uh, very fine musician, good flute player too. And we also heard some trumpet by Ernie Royal on Switching in the Kitchen. Ernie Royal was the elder brother, or I think the younger brother, actually, of Marshall Royal, uh, Count Basie's lead alto player. And uh, Ernie Royal played a little bit more modern than Marshall did. Marshall was a straight swing player. Ernie was young enough that he uh, got in with the beboppers a little bit. But he also played in big bands. Uh, he can be heard on uh, Miles Ahead, the Miles Davis album. He can be heard on lots of studio albums as well from the 1950s. We're going to uh, play a couple more tunes from this set, uh, this album, and uh, finish up, I guess, with three tunes. So we're going to do one called Here Comes Your Iceman, a really stark blues or bluesy performance by Big Joe Turner, followed by uh, one of the nicest ballads ever written in my book, Time After Time. And that's going to feature a beautiful Coleman Hawkins solo. And just listen to what Big Joe Turner does with the lyrics to that and, and the melody line. He doesn't sing it the way it was written. He in, in, inflects it with an amazing amount of blues quality, but without losing the uh, basic element of the song itself. He, he, he abstracts the melody, as many blues singers did, but still respected it enough that it's, it's recognizable. And it's really quite a performance, I think. Then we're going to finish up with a, 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 a rollicking blues with uh, some salacious uh, lyrics in there a little bit. Not quite enough to have a parental warning, I suppose, but uh, giving a little bit of the idea of the earthy elements of the blues. That's called Rebecca. So these are three tunes by Big Joe Turner and uh, this band that we'll tell you a little bit more about at the end when we come back to say our goodbyes. Here comes your Iceman, Time After Time, and Rebecca. Now your ice box is empty. 
25 pounds, baby Then you hand me a lousy dime You got a good old icebox It stands about seven feet tall But every morning when I come, baby I got to move it from the wall your ice man Baby, what you want me to do Got to move all the furniture Get my little cake ice through
won't pick no berry, but we come back feeling good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
So there we have Big Joe Turner, Big Joe Rides Again, three tunes from that album from September of 1959. We heard Here Comes Your Iceman, a nice minor blues that started out with an Ernie Royal trumpet solo. Some very nice trombone by Vic Dickinson behind the vocal. Uh, Vic Dickinson was one of the most personal trombone players in jazz history. He had a sound unlike any other in a way with uh, mutes and just a very conversational style when he was playing. He had played with Count Basie's band, with Benny Carter's big band. He had uh, recorded uh, small group sessions in the 40s with Sidney Bechet and Coleman Hawkins in a very modern uh, Coleman Hawkins type of group. He had... Uh, Recorded with the Eddie Condon bands, he had recorded with Louis Armstrong briefly before he went off with his All-Stars, and uh, probably one of the most interesting groups he, he played with in his later days, which would have been in the 1970s, was uh, the quintet uh, he was in with Bobby Hackett. It was just trumpet, trombone, and a rhythm section. Their Live at the Roosevelt Grill album was quite, a, quite an achievement. Then we went to Time After Time, a great ballad performance, which showed off a very different side of Joe Turner's singing, although certainly no one would mistake him for a, for a crooner uh, on the basis of that performance. He still had all of the blues inflections, but really a beautiful way with a ballad, and aided and abetted by Coleman Hawkins on tenor sax. Then we ended up with Rebecca. Uh, that featured solos all around pretty much. We had an alto saxophone solo by Jerome Richardson. Flip Ricard, Paul Ricard, was the trumpet player. He had been playing in big bands. He played with Basie for a while. I think he played with Ellington for a little bit, and he was actually playing with Sammy Davis's orchestra at the time, I think, and he played a good bebop-influenced trumpet solo. We had a piano solo by Jimmy Jones. Jimmy Jones was noted uh, for his accompanying abilities. He was uh, an accompanist of Ella Fitzgerald at different periods, and we heard some very inspired accompaniment behind some of the vocal choruses because the piano is very uh, hot in the mix, shall we say. Uh, very, very much turned up, but good in this case because we can hear some beautiful accompaniment by Jimmy Jones, as well as a very effective solo. Then we heard Vic Dickinson taking a trombone solo, very conversational, as I said, very much uh, in the style of the blues. He was uh, uh, renowned for his blues accompaniments with Jimmy Rushing and other people as well. And then we had another Coleman Hawkins solo. When Coleman Hawkins was on the date, he was automatically the most featured soloist. Everyone respected Hawkins immensely for what he had done, but also for uh, the, the magnificence of his playing at any point in his career, up to this point anyway, in the late 1950s and early 1960s. So that's our tribute to Big Joe Turner and those two albums, Big Joe Rides Again and Boss of the Blues from the late 1950s in Atlantic. Hope you've enjoyed those. I've loved those albums since I got them when I think I was in college. Um, great jazz playing and great singing as well, and all um, featuring the arrangements of Ernie Wilkins, which are not to be overlooked. So this has been the Jazz Focus, a uh, continuing series of podcasts. We hope you're enjoying the series. Uh, have lots of ideas coming up, and uh, we'll be submitting these from time to time, week to week, every other week, whenever, whenever the time presents itself. So we hope you're enjoying this. Let us know, and let us know if you're interested in some other cobwebby corner of jazz history. So again, the Jazz Focus, my name is John Clark, and I'll see you on the other side.